You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. A Hollywood actor publicly encouraged people to kidnap my children. And this weekend, a member of Congress called for people to push back and make clear to those serving their country in this administration that they are not welcome anywhere, anytime, for anything. We are now being lectured in civic courtesy by the Trump administration, which is a little like being lectured in sane, competent governance by the Trump administration. My guests Isabel Hilton and Charles Hecker will be discussing this and the day's top stories, including the possible agenda for the looming Trump-Putin summit, the unlikely common ground between Trump and his potential new counterpart south of the border, and what difference to your nation's morale does an early World Cup exit make? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks, and Isabel Hilton, Editor at China Dialogue. Welcome both. And we will start by looking ahead a fortnight and change hence at the possibility that Russian President Vladimir Putin may be taking US President Donald Trump to the World Cup final as his plus one, certainly if sufficient of Russia's upcoming opponents fall victim to mishaps with sushi or door handles that the home team ends up in the big game. The latest on President Trump's campaign of what could possibly go wrong summit meetings with America's non-traditional allies is that he plans to continue to Moscow after his visit to the United Kingdom on July 13th, presumably in search of a friendlier reception from the locals. Um, Isabel, what will they talk about? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> it's rather hard to tell with Trump, but I, but I, one of the curious things about this summit is that, you know, Trump, Trump and, and Putin seem to have this kind of bromance, but it's not reflected in the officials around him who remain, you know, pretty steady steadfastly anti, anti-Russia. So you've got John Bolton trying to negotiate the pre-meet. Uh, I can't imagine John Bolton turning into a Russophile overnight. So my prediction is People that... People have done weirder things to keep their jobs. Well, indeed. Uh, but And John Bolton is definitely weird. But even so, I, I think that the idea of coming up with a substantive agenda is, is a bit of a stretch. And I, my prediction will be that it's a bit like Singapore full of sound and fury and you know lots of showmanship um, but but nothing much at the end of it. Charles, what does Russia actually want from its relationship with the United States? Or perhaps a better question question would be, what else could Russia possibly want from its relationship with the United States right now? If we proceed on the assumption, and I think we reasonably can, that Vladimir Putin laughs himself to sleep every night. Uh, Vladimir Putin does laugh himself to sleep every night. He's got the rest of the West and the United States essentially over a barrel in terms of the way he's conducting his disruptive foreign policy. Um, I agree completely with Isabel. I have absolutely no idea what they're going to talk about. Um, what they want from the well, United States... So we know States. what Trump will talk about. It'll be his massive electoral college win. <laughs> exactly. At the, si- the size of the crowds at, <laughs> at uh, the inauguration. Um, what they want from the United States probably is something most in common with what everybody else wants from their relationship with the United States. And that is a little bit of predictability, a little bit of stability. I'm not one of these people who thought that Russia wanted Trump to win the presidential elections. All governments, especially the, Ru- the Russian government, are little c conservatives, and they don't like administrations that rock the boat, and they don't like administrations that throw them on the back foot. 
Uh, and that's what the president has done, President Trump has done, with almost all of his interlocutors on the international stage. And I think Russia, more than anything else, would like to see a little bit of calm and a little bit of predictability to the way President Trump conducts his foreign policy. Well, I'm pretty sure the Russians aren't going to get any of that. Nobody else has. Uh, Isabel, how worried would uh, those officials around Trump that you mentioned be be about Trump uh, extemporizing and doing something like, for example, deciding he'll recognize Russia's occupation of Crimea? For example, or even, you know, saying, that they'll scale back on military exercises as he did, as he threw in uh, with with Kim Jong-un. I, I would be worried. And there are real things that they, you know, could talk about, actually. Um, the state of arms control is pretty ropey at the moment. And, and Trump, you know, it's a little complicated for Trump. But these are fairly basic uh, bits of security architecture which don't disadvantage either side and which might be, you know, might benefit from their attention. Um, but what else he might throw in... Um, um, well, he, he I, I, what will happen at the NATO summit? What will happen in terms of his other relationships? Um, that could be seen as a gift to, to, to Putin. I, I think. <laughs> It's hard to tell how hedged about Trump feels by the Mueller investigation, but it would be a hostage to fortune in terms of domestic developments if he were to give him too much and then discover that that you know Mueller really had something that he was going to bring out at the end of this inquiry. Uh, Charles, Isabel uh, mentions there the, the bromance as she put it, between uh, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. It strikes me that it, it has a certain unrequited aspect to it. Uh, what do you understand of Trump's clear admiration for Vladimir Putin? Is it as, I, I think it's tempting and, and quite pleasing to believe that Putin has something on him or, or is, is Putin basically the kind of leader that Trump wishes he was allowed to be? Um, I think that perhaps in some of his deepest fantasies that President Trump wishes he had the kind of latitude, the kind of authority, and the kind of carte blanche that President Putin has in Russia. This is all part and parcel of Trump's desire to turn international relations into personal relationships. And I think he does admire President Putin. He hasn't said a bad thing about President Putin since the beginning of the presidential campaign. Which, which makes Vladimir Putin potentially unique among all living humans. <laughs> yes, that's right. He's got a, a fan club of precisely one. And so wanting a close relationship, which is what the president is always saying about people that he meets when he goes to summits, even if they are nothing more than expensive photo opportunities, which is exactly what happened in Singapore. Um, Isabel, if this was not President Trump going to Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin, if it was, for want of a less pejorative term, a normal president going to meet with Vladimir Putin, what would be considered a result for an American president from a meeting like this? Something constructive on Syria, perhaps. Um, certainly a return to arms control. We would have to imagine that we were in a different universe and that the Western alliance was not being dismantled by the American president. So that's, you know, assuming that we were in that position. What would we be looking at? We would be looking at probably the live uh, issues that we have now. I think Ukraine is not going to budge, uh, but, but, but certainly Syria could.
Okay, well, let's move on slightly and take a look at the United States, which is currently being treated to the richly amusing spectacle of spokespeople and surrogates for Donald Trump instructing others in civic courtesy. This is the latest evolution in the inane row, which has followed the decision of a Virginia restaurateur to decline to serve Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Predictably, this has been lit upon by a media and public who find it much easier to follow and much more fun than worrying about how to reunite thousands of children with their parents, but it does raise a couple of interesting questions. What personal respect do we owe those whose politics we find objectionable? And are ideological battles ever really won from the moral high ground, especially now? Um, Charles, if, if we cast you uh, briefly as a, a hypothetical Virginia restaurateur and you, and you saw the familiar figure of Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, taking a seat at one of your tables, do you take her order or uh, direct her to the door? Well, the actual Virginia restaurateur was saying that she talked with her staff Indeed she and did. said that it was the people who worked in the restaurant that had very, very passionate and deeply held beliefs about why Sarah Huckabee Sanders should be turfed out of the restaurant. And so what she did was she represented the feelings of her employees and took a collective decision to throw her out. Um, I don't think we've ever made enormous political gain in the United States by attacking individuals. Uh, We attack movements, we attack issues, we attack trends. Um, Personalizing it to this level is probably not going to get us very far. So I genuinely don't know what I think about this. If I, if I, Isabel, if I ran a bar or a cafe or something of the sort myself, I can certainly think of people that I, I have a threshold somewhere. I can certainly pe- think of people I would ask to leave the building. I don't know if, if Sarah Huckabee Sanders quite makes my list. Hard to know, isn't it? But I, I, I'm very much reminded of Michelle Obama's famous speech during the the campaign, which was "When they go low, we go high," and I think there's quite a lot to be said for that. Not least because, in terms of personal insult, Trump is an absolute past master. So why take somebody on 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 the ground on the territory that you know he commands? You can't be as insulting. Well, well my, as Trump. my my theory would be that you are not going to be able to get a table at this restaurant for the next ten years. I mean. I mean, this 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 is going to be a it huge because this 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 is the Trump effect. Every time he lights into some or other commercial enterprise, their sales go through the roof. I believe I speak for every author in the world when I say we dream of getting hate tweeted by Donald Trump one day. It would be a lottery win. Um, but Charles, what we have seen uh, a couple of the more uh, idiotic sort of arguments that have been floated in the last couple of days. Uh, one is this idea that things have become terrible, that, that public discourse in the United States used to be conducted in rarefied tones of decency and civility. These people have never read a history book. Yeah, this is the nostalgia effect of looking backwards at sort of political history. I mean, people have literally said things in the last few days, including about how dignified, decent and peaceable Vietnam War protests and counter-protests were. People got shot dead at Kent State University. Someone even advanced the civil rights movement mm. as a kind of model of good manners and the reaction to it as a model of good manners. They you can, only point, out so nicely. You can yes. only point out so many times that they shot Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, exactly. I'm precisely right. I mean, look, you know, it is things. there is nothing new under the sun in political discourse in the United States has been ever thus. That said, um, aside from these tragic and unjustifiable peaks in the history of political dialogue in the United States, you have to admit that over the past, I don't know, there's probably no time to market specifically, but the trend is definitely downward in terms of the trajectory of political discourse in the United States. But rather than seeing the sort of gradual degradation and dissolution of political conversation in the US, we've really seen it go down a mud chute right now. 
Uh, Isabel, there is a, another ropey conventional wisdom which has been aired, which does also apply just as much to the United Kingdom and I think all democracies. This idea that civility and consensus and decency in public discourse is what the public actually want. I don't believe that for a second. I think people are enormously entertained by a massive row. Uh, that's why so much of the media tends toward constructing such things. And I, I mean, it, it's it's um, not that I wish to apply sporting metaphors or comparisons to everything. Thing, but it's it's the same thing as whenever you see a punch up at a football match the sort of the games authorities and commentators all go on about how this is terrible and this is awful but if you actually look at the crowd everyone's laughing their heads off they are but if but if every game descended into a punch off they a punch up they would get fed up and whilst i don't disagree with you everybody loves a kind of fight and a particularly a, a squalid exchange of insults um, but it has the knock on effect of making people even more disillusioned with politics than before and the kind of thing that said for example about prime minister's question time or, or, you know, today in Parliament nobody, is that the brain hoo-ha. No one would watch PMQs if it was all reasonable discussion. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right about the instant attraction, but the long-term effect nevertheless is corrosive. And I would say on this issue also, given that it is a characteristic of, of you know, authoritarian mindset that they are the poor victim of everything, and you see this in Trump all the time, you know, poor little me, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, everyone's being unfair to me, all this kind of thing. Scott Pruitt justifying travelling first class on the grounds that somebody might be rude to him in business or, or heaven help us, economy, um, despite no recorded that, that incidents. Was, yeah, but that it. was the only time I felt any sympathy for Scott Pruitt when he said I'd rather travel. He basically said I want to travel in first class because the public are awful. Well, uh, but, I, I, well you I, said I, because I, the public I, I, hate me. I, well, you know, I, well I, I, again. <laughs> which uh, is a, you know, a well-founded <laughs> perception, but, but nevertheless, you should take the consequences of your actions. But I, but I think that it feeds this, this narrative you know any any kind of evidence you give of hostility um, just you know Trump will use this to to, to become the victim yet again and but, it's but, just tiresome but Charles what else do you do is the moral high ground actually an advantage uh, when you are when your opposition is Donald Trump and his legions I guess the question is can you actually shame the shameless at the moment the answer appears to be no um, there doesn't seem to be any way to occupy the moral high ground and satisfy anybody other than yourself by saying, here I am occupying the moral high ground on social networks and on Twitter. Um, the problem is, as Isabel pointed out, is that when this guy goes as low as he's going, there is a race to the bottom. And it has ever been thus also. I mean, if you think about sort of schoolyard fights between kids, you know, everybody seems to descend to the level of the bully. And it's very, very hard to turn the other cheek. And what's happening is that President Trump is dragging everybody into this schoolyard brawl. I mean, the way he's conducting himself on Twitter shows that if anybody was supposed to be in control of the president in the White House, and if anybody was supposed to be muzzling him or at least directing the message, they've either stopped or they've completely failed. So, Isabel, what do you do if, if, if what you are hoping to do is win hearts, minds, and ideally votes away from people who voted for Donald Trump? How do you make that pitch if you're determined that there's no point uh, in playing Trump at his own game? And I guess this is another conventional wisdom, that one that holds that you shouldn't wrestle with a pig because you'll both get filthy and the pig won't care. Um, what do you actually do? Well, I think you do uh, try to remind people that, you know, there, there are real issues here, that you have... Um sane and compassionate views on those issues and that you're not going to then you could present an alternative form of politics and i think that you know it's somewhere in the hearts of the american voter that you know there is uh, outside trump's particularly narrow base there is 
a, a desire for this. If you look at the polling, for example, on immigration, you know, there are 70% of Americans approve of immigration. So, you know, Trump's bullying rhetoric doesn't necessarily carry the argument. I mean, is it just one of those things, Charles, that, that Trump's behaviour resonates with the people who like him anyway? That it, it just, it, it keeps his base uh, in place and keeps his base faithful and his base happy and he's never really going to win over anybody else? Uh, yeah, no, I agree with that, except that I think at some point this is all going to be begin to grate and it's going to begin to grate on his base because they're going to get tired of hearing the same thing over and over I again. Don't know, the Rolling Stones are still touring. <laughs> That's a personal issue, I think. <laughs> um, but they're going to get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again and just wait. In the next six months, the economy is going to start to bite his base in the backside. That's a lot of bees there, but that's what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, this this sort of gutter speech on Twitter isn't going to be very sustaining to them and isn't going to help them with the realistic problems that the U.S. economy is going to start facing probably around the time of the midterm elections. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Isabel Hilton and Charles Hecker. Coming up next, Mexico's presidential election and whether Argentina's collective equilibrium would survive an early exit from the World Cup. Pack your bags and join us on a global tour through exciting and inspiring cities. From Madrid to Miami, Tokyo to Toronto, we've created travel guides that will help you get the best out of a city, no matter how short your stay. We'll whirl you around some of our favorite architectural spots, top cultural haunts, and then point you in the direction of a well-earned drink from a little-known cocktail bar. We've also scouted the prettiest running routes, the most design-savvy shops, and the best hotels to comfortably rest your head. View our full range of travel guides at monocle.com or visit any good bookstore and plan your next escape today. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Millister. With me are Charles Hecker and Isabel Hilton. And let's look now at Mexico, where voters will choose a new president this weekend. And if fairly consistent polls are to be believed, the president they're going to choose is veteran left-winger Andre Manuel López Obrador. Among the possible consequences of this is the establishment of a second front in the campaign against the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. U.S. President Donald Trump famously dislikes the deal. Might he be about to find an unlikely ally on the other side of the border wall he still hasn't built. Um, Charles, uh, President Presumptive Obrador, if we can call him that, has said he is in support of NAFTA. However, his foreign policy advisor, uh, Hector Vasconcelos, has said that the collapse of NAFTA wouldn't be the end of the world, So it's it's which is probably a literal statement of fact, in fairness to him. Um, but do we get the impression that President Obrador, if that's what he's going to be, is a fan or not? Well, first of all, short of the end of the world, there's a lot of damage that you can do. Well, exactly. so, I've, I've never been much reassured by that myself. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this may be something that a fairly populist candidate on the left is trying to say to drum up votes because Mexico is feeling incredibly hard done by when it comes to this rhetoric and this tone and this bullying that you're getting out of the White House. And so AMLO, as we're calling 
Mr. Lopez Obrador, is feeding that and saying, I will represent you. And if we have to, we're going to talk tough to Washington. And that may include leaving NAFTA. Um, I don't think that NAFTA is going to come undone as a result of the Mexican elections, even if AMLO wins. Um, What I'm clinging to for the foreseeable future is this. As much as President Trump likes to leave agreements, um, the reddest of the red states that voted for him in the 2016 elections depend the most on trade with Canada and Mexico. And so we talk about damaging his base. Leaving NAFTA hits his base the hardest. Well, this is true, although he has just declared war on Harley Davidson, headquartered in Wisconsin, whose 10 electoral college votes he won by a whisker in 2016. He may not be thinking that clearly. Um, Isabel... It would put President Obrador, if that's who he's going to be, in a weird position, wouldn't it? It would be very politically difficult for a new Mexican president to start out by agreeing with Donald Trump about something. I personally don't think he will. I mean, he's not... He, he's campaigning in a coalition, remember. He's a, he's a left-winger, though nobody so. quite knows what sort of a left-winger he is. Is he a Chavez or a, or a, a Lula? You know, and there's, there's quite a lot of distance between those two models. Um, and he has a, a right-wing coalition partner who he doesn't have much strength in Congress and, you know, may, this, you know, may not get enough um, representation in Congress, even if he, as seems extremely likely, gets the president. But I think what he's telling people is, you know, that he will stand up to this kind of hectoring, bullying and nastiness. And that's absolutely fine by Mexicans. And this hasn't really been much of an issue in the electoral campaign, um, mainly because there's no difference between the uh, candidates on whether they dislike Donald Trump. So, you know, there's nothing to argue about <laughs> that. You know, who's who's going to stand up in favor of, 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 uh, of Donald Trump? So the issues that have been foremost in the campaign, and it's a very young electorate this time around, are, you know, corruption, violence, drugs, you know, and, and prospects. And, and, you know, Mexico has been been, been through a, a horrible kind of cycle of violence, largely drug-related, but not entirely drug-related. And a sense that, you know, the the state at federal and, and at state level has done very little about it. So I think that's what really is, is feeding people's passions. And it's a plague on both your houses at the moment, between the pre and the pan, which is how López Obrador has come through the middle. Um, but I don't expect him, I mean, I expect him to try and tear up you know, the kind of domestic um, corruption and so on in in Mexico. I don't really expect him to take on uh, the United States in terms of leaving NAFTA, but to say, you know, to take a strong line on NAFTA and and say we're not going to be pushed around just because, you know, you you think it's good for your your base to be rude to Mexicans. Uh, Charles, is there there a a cynical view to be had about the idea that NAFTA might become for Obrador a thing he can get stuck into because it's an awful lot easier than tackling those problems that Isabel alluded to, drugs, corruption and violence. Yeah, there's not, first of all, there's always room for a cynical view, number one. Number two, um, there's not a lot of hope, even if Obrador gets elected, there's not a lot of hope that he's going to make in a six-year term substantial progress on violence, on corruption, or even on economic development. Um, The problem is that Getting engaged and getting stuck into NAFTA and making that one of your issues means that you're engaging with an incredibly mercurial, 
inconsistent, unpredictable, and hostile president, and who wants to really stake your political career or your political future on someone who is unstable and will start calling you names. I mean, we can only imagine the nicknames that Trump will come up with for the Mexican president in his <laughs> in his Twitter feed. Uh, they, also, at the moment, in Mexico and in the rest of Latin America, they feel they've got an alternative to El Norte in, in China. And, you know, that has sort of changed. It's changed the rhetoric. And, of course, Mexico remains deeply bound to the United States economically. But um, it's not the only game in town anymore. Okay, well, finally tonight, in an item included in what can only be seen as an act of willful sadism by the show's producer, we are to discuss the effect on a nation's morale of an early exit from the World Cup, although we might observe that Brazil are not quite there yet. Uh, We are, of course, doing this a matter of hours after Australia's march to glory was cruelly halted by Peru. For the third World Cup running, the Socceroos have failed to emerge from the group stages. Of rather more import to the equilibrium of the nation concerned, however, Argentina current campaign dangles by a thread. Should they fail to beat Nigeria later tonight, an early return to Buenos Aires and a barrage of tomatoes awaits. Um, actually, that's something that doesn't happen nearly enough anymore. Teams what, coming home early getting, getting, of rotten pel- fruit. Pel- yeah. pelted with last week's groceries. Uh, the last actual example of it I could find was Italy in 1966. They got knocked out of the World Cup in England by North Korea. Uh, this, 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 it's an amazing story, but this is all true. Rather than fly the team home to Rome. They they rerouted the flight, landed them at Genoa in the, like at three o'clock in the morning. Um, but the locals found out anyway and turned up en masse uh, at the airport uh, and, and hosed them mightily with pretty much every item of fruit or vegetable they could find. Funnily enough, a friend of mine made a documentary on the North Korean team, which of course, you know, had the most amazing I've experience. I've seen that film, which yes. is fabulous. Um, but uh, Isabel, you, you are Scottish and therefore have wide experience of uh, seeing your team come home early from World Cups. Does it have a, a dreadful effect on, on the national mood? Well, it does, because, you know, the Scottish when, when the Scottish team qualifies, of course, there is this kind of extraordinary um, uh, emotional outburst to the point where... Y- younger listeners may have difficulty recalling such possibly, events. But I do remember in the late 70s when, um, in fact, the World Cup was being played in Argentina and the national tabloid said uh, the whole front page was taken up with the headline, Rio, here we come. I always wondered whether... <laughs> Whether any Scots, you know, found it curiously quiet in Rio when everyone was in Argentina playing the footy. Um, but heroic failure is also another, it's another national passion. So, you know, getting knocked out just is, it, it's reconfirming in a curious way. See, Australia will be only mildly vexed by this. We don't like losing uh, at international sporting events, but but soccer is not uh, well, you can tell the where it figures in our hierarchy of priorities by the fact that I refer to it as soccer rather than football. Uh, where I come from, football something else entirely. There is an Australian Rules Football World Cup, but we don't actually play in it because we'd win. Well, spare a thought for the people actually who also call football something else and who didn't make it into the contest <laughs> well, in, in the first place. In, indeed not. But, but, but when the United States have got to World Cups and have failed to win them, does it really have a big impact on America or, or not really? It doesn't really. It's not the American sport in the way baseball or American football or basketball is. It's it's not a sort of subject of national pride. It might be among the kids who are starting to pick up football and identify with soccer, rather, uh, as their primary sports 
pastime. But the United States is certainly not a country that lives or dies on its success in the World Cup. Or, or actually to follow that up in international sport at all, really, which is, is a peculiarity of the United States. Well, but here's what you're overlooking. Every time an American team wins the Super Bowl and every time an American <laughs> baseball team wins the World Series, they are world champions. So it really doesn't matter. We are world champions in a lot of sports that nobody else plays. Are you able to recall any sort of moments of triumph for, for Scotland either at, at football or anything else that, that did have a sort of uh, enlivening effect on the, the morale of the oh, nation? Oh, beating England. Um, of course. You know, on, on, at, at literally anything. At, at literally anything, but certainly at football. I mean, I think they actually stole the goalposts last time this happened. There was a <laughs> that was Wembley a long incident. time ago, yes. That was it, yes. Well, I don't track it that closely. But um, but just, just on the Argentine front, I think that Argentina's pain and grief would be would be greatly heightened if England is not knocked out at the same time because the real kind of needle <laughs> match is is England Argentina and in 1982 when when they just fought a rather different contest um, you know the end of the, the Falklands War within uh, days the entire nation which had been transfixed by the Falklands War had switched the telly on and were watching the World Cup and the whole national mood instead of going you know continuing to to mass suicide became moment momentarily lifted until they got knocked out then and these are you know the england argentine matches have been particularly uh, intense ever since there is something nice though about seeing a, a, a nation collectively go nuts uh, even if it isn't your own i remember being in ireland in 1990 and being in dublin when they beat romania on penalties to get to the quarterfinals of the world cup um i can remember walking home at about four o'clock in the morning and there were buses abandoned in the street by the drivers who just walked off the job and left them there to join the party. It, it, it was it was it was quite something. I miss the Irish in this World Cup. Uh, anyway, that does bring us to the end of the show. We should wish a, a grudging good luck to teams including Brazil and for the moment Argentina which remain in the World Cup. Uh, the show was produced by uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was George McDonough. Uh, music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.